No, still no? Getting a little louder? Okay. All right, now we're good. All right. I'm so happy to see everyone here today. I just love Pain Week. I'm honored and happy to be here and participate, and I just enjoy this really exciting mix of providers that we have from different disciplines. Um, it's so great that we can come together and talk about this important topic. And here are my disclosures. Sounds like there might be a little feedback now, but I'm sure they're working on it. I can see them working on it. And what we're going to talk about today is how to enhance motivation and adherence. Really, what to do when you feel like a patient is stuck, when you feel like you're working harder than a particular patient, or it feels like maybe a patient doesn't even want to get better. I've got some tricks and some pearls that can help move that patient forward and relieve some of the distress that we feel as healthcare professionals when we are trying to help move someone forward. It just feels like it's not working. So here are our learning objectives for today. We're going to be able to describe motivational interviewing techniques in clinical practice to match our patient treatment readiness to their level of change. We're going to discuss research on medical communication to establish positive rapport, convey empathy, improve adherence by creating mutually determined treatment goals. And we're going to, I'm going to explain how to address challenges and barriers that you might come to in your clinical care with certain patients to achieve improved outcomes and really improve feelings on both sides of the, of the desk. So very briefly, I'm going to review the history of the secondary and tertiary gains concepts, talk about a few examples, and then we'll jump right into some strategies. This is a sh shorter session, so I'm going to move quickly. But of course, you can always access the slides uh, online, and you can always follow up with me as well. I love to talk after a meeting as well, so send me an email if you'd like to. So who coined the terms primary and secondary gain? Someone throw it out. Am I hearing anyone out there? What, we have some guesses? Waddell, no. Maslow, no. Oh, who? I wish I had a candy bar. Who, who got that? There you go, Sigmund Freud. This was, of course, an interesting guy. And he had some ideas that, that secondary gains were really about um, unconscious needs and desires that we were trying, someone was trying to achieve something, but they were uncomfortable with it. So we know how Freud had these interesting kind of ideas. And then in the 80s, the DSM actually adopted the concept and put it into the conversion disorder diagnosis for DSM-3. And then it moved into the somatization disorder concept for DSM-4 and 5. So once again, a little bit more participation. What are some examples of secondary gains or reinforcers you may have seen in your practice? Just throw some things out. Social security disability, ding, ding. We need the, you know, the board, ding, 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 number one answer. That's great. What else do we have? What? Getting off work, yes. No family chores. No family chores, yes. Being my spouse sorry for doing Oh, yes, spousal sympathy, spousal sympathy. You guys are great, and you read my mind, because I came... What? I'm going to Disneyland. Yes, yes, absolutely. Special treatment, special care, absolutely. I came up with some of the same that you did. I came up with a few more 
Um, I got the uh, avoiding um, attention and concerns of others like your spouse, avoiding work, maybe avoiding sexual demands, hostility towards or dependency on other family members. Certainly we have the SSDI, the, the benefits, the uh, service-connected benefits, all sorts of reasons for for secondary gain that might work against what we're trying to do with our patient, which is return them to optimal functioning, both physically and mentally. So it's really frustrating, as we all know, when we end up in that tug of war. Now, sometimes we're the little boy, and I think sometimes we're the donkey, because sometimes we've got patients pulling us in a direction that we're not comfortable with, like signing disability papers. And sometimes we might feel like we're tugging, and the more we tug, the more someone just kind of digs in their heels. Has anyone ever felt this way with a particular patient, that you've just come to an impasse? And the harder you pull, the harder they dig in their heels. So I'm going to take just a moment here. You're going to make friends with your neighbor. And I'd like you to pair up in teams of two. <laughs> All right, good. We've got some. We have some new friendships here. This is perfect. I want one of you to make a fist. And the one part of the partnership who makes a fist does not want to let go of this fist. You don't want to let go of this fist. I want the other person to get that person to undo, clench their fist. I'm going to give you a minute. You have my permission to do almost anything that's legal. We're in Las Vegas. so. Let me use this example, I'll bring it right back to you. <laughs> okay. $20. The man in front. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. So wrapping up, what worked? I saw a bribe up here in the front. Anyone else who has a Kit Kat bar? Okay, we've got some good bribes going. What else worked over here? A cup of coffee later. So we've got a lot of good bribes going. I like the bribery approach. What else? What else do we have? Oh, she nicely asked you, and you didn't want to say no. Oh, that's great. That's great. I like that. Anyone who was successful over here? Anyone on this side? Thumbs up. So a partial, partial. That's nice. That's nice. I like that. Oh, but he caught on and thumbs up with what you're doing. But, you know, partial gains are still wins. I like that. Okay, you guys are clever. You guys are clever. I like it. You've had some experience, I can tell, in, in, in trying to motivate people to do things. 
So when a patient seems stuck, what are some of the things we can do? Well, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I'm strongly trained in kind of a CBT and a motivational interviewing background. And the motivational interviewing model is really cool. It was actually developed in the 1970s and then into the 80s with substance abuse and smoking cessation and some of those really tough behavior change areas. Since then, it's been applied to weight management, exercise, and our area of pain, another tough behavior change area. So I'm going to tell you how we can apply the motivational interviewing model to our patients to not only move them forward, but make our lives a little easier. Some other things that really matter are enhancing self-efficacy in our patients. Self-efficacy is the belief that they can do something about their condition that makes a difference. A lot of times we end up with patients who are feeling hopeless and helpless and that this is all out of their control. Um, speaking of which, we're going to talk about fostering an internal locus of control. Our patients like to come to us and say, you're the doctor, you've got the prescription pad, you've got the white coat, you fix this. And so we know that, we've heard that before. Or you're the nurse practitioner, or you're the physical therapist, or you're the occupational therapist, the social worker. This is your problem. It's your job. So we're going to talk about moving someone to an internal versus an external locus of control. I'm going to give you a couple tips for enhancing adherence, which you may have not thought about before. And then finally, when all else fails, refer to your friendly psychologist who can spend more time bribing these patients. <laughs> So motivational interviewing is a collaborative process used to strengthen motivation for change. You recognize the problem, you identify the patient's readiness for change or willingness to change, and then we tailor interventions to that stage of readiness. This is so important because we can waste a lot of time coming up with wonderful, beautiful treatment plans of all the newest, latest, and greatest technologies when our patient doesn't even want to change anything possibly due to a secondary reinforcer or a psychologic comorbidity or some other reason. So first, we like to think about what are the advantages of changing? What are the advantages of treating a condition? Treatment might be a medication, a neurostimulator, physical therapy, weight loss, getting good sleep, taking your medication properly. Well, as healthcare professionals, we know the advantages. We're here at this meeting. We care about moving our patients towards health. That's why we're here. So very clear to us why we want to motivate people to change. We also can see clearly what are the disadvantages of not managing their condition. They don't feel well. They're in pain. They're not working. They're not moving forward in their life. It's affecting their family relationships. They're depressed and anxious, and they've gained weight, and everything hurts. This is clear to us, crystal clear. And yet a patient may be kind of stuck in what are the advantages of not changing their situation. And we go back to all those excellent ideas that were thrown out with secondary gains. Are they pretty comfortable in their new home situation? Are they not working? And that's nice because their job was stressful or demanding. Is their spouse taking great care of them these days? Are they off the hook with perhaps chores and childcare and other stressors? So actually, one thing we really need to do is start there. And maybe even ask the patient, say, you know, you, you've been in this situation for a bit and you've gotten things kind of worked out in your life and what would be some of the things you might have to give up if you were to move forward and move back to being more active or move back to better physical or mental health? So starting with those off diagonals 
is often a really good entree to a discussion with a patient that feels respectful and yet it's getting to the nitty gritty. Rather than going right to, clearly you are here for my help and we're gonna get you better and get you back to work. Um, and they just put up, put up a roadblock and, and everything else we say for the next 20 minutes goes right, you know, runs right off their back and it doesn't matter. So this is a nice way to start. It also establishes a nice empathy and sense of rapport that you are acknowledging that there are things that they would be giving up or changing if they were to improve function or remove pain. A good way to follow up with this is after the patient has talked to you about, well, yeah, yeah, there might be some things that, that are working in my life right now. Some things will be hard if I had to go back to work. You want to use that patient's own words. So you come back and say, no, on the one hand, you said it would be hard to go back to work. Your job was stressful and you had a tough situation with your boss. So you're using the patient's own words. And then you say, now on the other hand, you just told me, perhaps he told you that he's not able to play with his grandchildren. That's making him really sad. So on the one hand, you said, oh, going back to that job is very stressful, but you're also feeling really sad that you're missing out on time with your grandchildren. And then we want to put it back to the patient. So what do you think we should do? We're not going to say what we think he should do because we clearly know what we think he should do. We think he should get better and functionally restore and move back towards health. We're going to put this back to the patient and let the patient kind of mull around the pros and cons there. And then what we're going to do to save our time and our energy and our mental health is we're going to tailor our strategy to where that patient is in their readiness to change. So here's the stages of change model. We have pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. And for anyone in the room who's ever made a New Year's resolution, we've all gone through these stages before. And I'm going to tell you what each one is. But it's easy to move forward. It's easy to move back. Uh, we tend to not always stay in maintenance, even if we've lost weight or started exercising or, or taken a class or done something that we need to do. Um, so pre-contemplation. This is the patient who is not ready to change, does not want to, does not want to be in your office, and is likely there because someone has made him or her come. It could be a workers' comp situation, it could be a VA hospital situation, it could be a spouse, but there's someone else who wants them to be there, and they're there possibly because they have some other needs to get met, which could be paperwork or prescription. Um, but they are not interested in change in adding uh, maybe components that we might think about, like some good physical therapy or some, some new type of treatment that might require energy. So when someone's in pre-contemplation, there is no need for us to spend a lot of time describing new exciting treatments or therapies because they're not ready to hear them. So at that point, this is where we just want to stop and talk to them where we just talked about how is this in, in interfering in your life, what are your goals, uh, do you feel that there are some ways that we could actually improve your, your, your functioning and not increase the stress in your life? So you're really talking at that level about just getting them on board at all. And anything additional we do is really a waste of our energy. And we need to conserve our energy because we're caring for people all day long. So we want to meet them at that place. Contemplation is when the patient has some motivation to change. They have thought about it. 
they may have come to see you because they want to talk about what the options are. Maybe they don't want to actually engage in them yet, but they're ready to learn about the options are out there. And so that's where we want to do our exploration of the consequences of changing or not changing and start to educate them about potential treatments options, pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic, interventional. Um, that's when we want to start to have those conversations. But it's probably too early to actually write that prescription and expect it to get filled or taken properly. Preparation is when a patient is ready to engage in a behavior change. And so let's use an example of um, a smoking cessation. Someone comes in and wants to stop smoking. If they're in preparation, they are motivated to change. They have thought it through. Maybe this is their birthday resolution or their New, Res New Year's resolution. They've come to you and they're ready. This is the time to talk to them about a, a prescription that could help, about a behavioral treatment that could help, and actually get those resources to them, start getting them going. That's the right time. Anything before here, and it's really probably an effort that won't get too far. And so here we want to start giving them the tools they need, identify their skills and deficits, and start getting them hooked up. Action, the patient is on their way. In a, with a chronic pain patient, this may be someone who's already not only taking their medication, maybe they're trying a neurostimulator and they're also going to physical therapy. And now we want to talk about, okay, you're doing great, you're engaging in treatment. What barriers or challenges are you having? And we don't want to say, are you having barriers or challenges? We want to say, what barriers or challenges are you having? We want to say something like, um, when I write prescriptions for people, I know it's not always, always easy to remember. I know they can have side effects. I know people have concerns. What challenges have you been having? And open up that conversation. And that's when we want to keep them on the right track by addressing any concerns they have. So maybe you wrote a prescription for them when they were in last time. They went home. They went to you know, Dr. WebMD. They also talked to their neighbor and their mailman. They heard about the 17 side effects. They're afraid. And they didn't fill it. This is the exact right time to have that conversation about addressing myths, addressing concerns, and clarifying, re-educating, and keeping them on the right track. And then maintenance. This may be someone who has actually successfully completed treatment. They are doing better. They've maybe started back to work or started volunteering, or they're more active with their family. We don't want to, of course, just drop them and not that you would ever do that, but we want to recognize that challenges are going to come up, and they're going to be setbacks, and that's just life. That's the way it goes. And we want to keep partnering with them to figure out, OK, as challenges come up, what, how can we be best helping you continue on this positive path? So by noticing where a patient is, we can save a lot of energy and a lot of frustration on our part and on the patient's part and more smoothly and seamlessly get to these good outcomes as we kind of ramp up as they ramp up. In addition, I mentioned self-efficacy, and self-efficacy is the belief that something that you do can make a difference. And a lot of times with chronic pain patients, they've gotten to a place of feeling very hopeless, very out of control. How many times have we heard, this pain runs my life, it's taken away my life, I've lost my life due to pain, due to this condition? And so what we want to start to do is bring back any place that they can make a difference, even a little bit. Is it, for example, filling their prescription? Is it taking it properly? 
Is it just even going to their physical therapy or following through for a first evaluation? We want to start to have them feel that they can take actions that make positive outcomes. Because when someone is feeling very hopeless and helpless, they're not going to be engaging no matter how many treatment options and tools we hand them. We have to have them feel, okay, I'm in a partnership with my healthcare professional and we're going to do this and I can make a difference by doing these actions. It may be things like keeping diaries of triggers, noticing flares, pacing, uh, maybe getting family members involved. It may be rewarding the good behaviors. Uh, we saw that that worked very well here with the unclenching of the fists with all sorts of rewards. So we want to think about that strong self-efficacy. The patient can make a difference. We also want to think about locus of control. As I mentioned, that external locus of control is when the patient comes in and says, you're the professional. This is your job. You will fix me. And the idea is that you need to do something to manage this condition. And that's kind of a very stressful situation for us because we're working with very difficult, intractable conditions that aren't always that easy to manage and change. And so what we want to do is move the patient back to this idea that this is a shared partnership. We're really a coach. But in the big game, they're out there on their own. They're living their lives on their own, and we're not by them 24-7. We are really giving them the tools, the skills, the knowledge that they need. We're coaching them in practice, but they're going to go out and live their life on their own. And so we want to move them to this internal locus of control, that there are things that they can do to manage their condition. And that includes a lot of the non-pharmacologic techniques, certainly physical therapy, exercise, getting good adequate sleep, eating healthy, staying hydrated, managing stress, engaging in relaxation activities, joining a gym, going to yoga class, taking a walk every night with their dog after dinner. There are things that they need to do in the non-pharmacologic area and also in the pharmacologic area. They have to fill the prescription. They have to take it properly. They have to carry it with them. They have to not overtake it, misuse it, or abuse it. There's a lot that they need to do. And so the more we can engage them that we're just the coach and they're the player and it's really up to them, um, the more we can get them on board and getting to good outcomes. And I've been talking about adherence. I use the term adherence instead of compliance because adherence is really the idea that we, again, are working as a team towards shared goals. Adherence is the idea, the extent to which a patient's behavior matches the agreed-upon treatment goals. And what's very key is we're making shared agreed-upon treatment goals. If we go with our own agenda and say, here are your goals, and we don't know if the patient ever agreed to them. They may not be motivated to really engage in them. So it's really important that we make sure we, again, use the patient's own words. We identify goals that they specified that were unique to them and important to them. For the example I gave, it was that man wanted to play with his grandchildren. Maybe he wanted to be able to get on the floor and play trains with his grandchild. We hold on to a goal that's emotionally important to that person, and we work together to achieve that goal. And 
Another way to think about adherence, if we were to predict how likely is someone to adhere to any particular treatment, pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic, there's two factors in this two-by-two two table that matter. One, is the condition impactful? Is it important? Is it affecting their life? Does it matter? And so in a, in a chronic pain condition, someone may come in and maybe they think, yes, I have pain, but the rest of life is pretty much okay. I'm not working. I don't have a lot of responsibilities at home. Um, I have a lot of free time to myself. Why having those conversations that we talked about earlier, really highlighting how is this condition affecting your life negatively? We can move them to the idea that this condition is important and it is something they want to change. And then on the left side, we're asking, are the treatments we're offering effective and safe? If a person does not think either they're effective or safe, and by safe it could be uncomfortable, it could be side effects, it could be difficult to use, difficult to acquire, whatever, we are much less likely to have adherence. So these are two areas of discussion in the limited time we have with patients that we want to hit. How is this condition affecting your life? Why is this important? What are you not able to do that you care about? And the treatment options that I just mentioned, I have confidence in. They have good safety data. I've seen dozens of patients come to good outcomes with these. We want to give them all of our confidence to instill to them that these treatments will make a difference if they engage in them. And then finally, if all else fails or if you want support, you can always engage a, a behavioral psychologist, a health psychologist, to also reinforce these messages. And if you do engage a behavioral psychologist, say you think that either someone is so resistant and you kind of can't figure out why, or maybe comorbidities such as depression, anxiety, panic are really maybe part of the problem in there, or maybe there's additional family dynamics that are going on, marital distress, abuse, other things like that. You may want to get a psychologist in your team. And when you engage that psychologist, you want to make sure to your patient you're saying, one, I believe you, you have a real medical condition, I'm not passing you off to a shrink, um, and we're going to actually be a partner, and we're going to work as a team. I'm just adding someone to the coaching team here. Otherwise, the patient gets very frustrated. They feel they're not being heard, they're not being listened to, and they're being stigmatized. So make sure when you make that referral, you're very careful in the way you talk about it and that they know that, in fact, you're just adding someone to the coaching team. You're not passing them off. And um, cognitive behavioral therapy has strong data for managing health-related anxiety, somatic symptoms, pain, and uh, a whole other talk about what we do. In fact, I gave that talk yesterday, if you happen to be there. And if not, feel free to look at the slides in the, hand, in, the, uh, in the handout. And here are some websites for finding providers. When I give talks, one of the most common things I hear right after the talk is, well, that's all well and great, but how do I find someone? Um, these are all listed on my website, which is donbuse.com. And you can go to several different places to find a provider. Um, including Society of Behavioral Medicine, Association for Applied Psychophysiology, Biofeedback, a couple other places. And in addition, on my website, if you do want to have patients learn the diaphragmatic breathing, guided visual imagery, relaxation exercise, I also have those there. Um, and sometimes, when we're working that hard, what we need to do is just drop the reins and take a break, let the patient kind of mull over what we've said, and let them come back to us when we're ready. 
because ultimately we have to protect our own well-being as healthcare professionals. We can't care for others if we are exhausted and getting frustrated ourselves. So thank you very much for your time.